I'm just telling the story so wrong. Oh. <laughs> so let's just start over. I just, I'm talking and I'm going, wait a minute, that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cocktails at Table 7, inside New York's Joe Allen. In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types. The food was great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm. Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best. We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be. So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at table seven. Welcome back, Dana. Welcome back, Sean. Welcome back, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Why, thank you. Thank you. This is our new our new podcast voices. These are polished podcaster voices. <laughs> we took a master class with NPR, so we're just going to talk like this <laughs> from now on. We wouldn't sound like this if we were at NPR. That was terribly, it was a little frightening, I'm not going to lie. I don't know about There'd that. There'd be a lot more vocal fry if we were at NPR. <laughs> so, uh, who'd we talk to? We talked to the fabulous Liz Calloway this week. We did. And she's she's a really, you know, she has one of the most beautiful singing voices that I've ever heard. I mean, it's so crystalline and, 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 and light and it's 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 like very comforting. And, and so is her speaking voice. <laughs> listening to her talk is equally delightful. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, we went and listened to, I listened to this the other day and I said, oh my gosh, I could listen to this woman talk for ages. She needs to do those stories on like the meditation apps where they have the story that are supposed to low like comfort you and calm you I if she has time because she's doing so many things so we talked to her about of course we like to go back to her days on you know beginning on broadway beginning in the city and th- those were great memories but we also got to hear her talk about how excited she was to be getting back in front of live audiences so uh, when we talked to her this was last month she had not resumed performances but she is now performing live at wonderful venues all over the country uh, and she will be in New York at City Field at the end of July. Singing the national anthem, I presume? Yes, yes. And then she'll be at 54 Below in New York on August 8th and 9th. So you can get tickets to that. You can see her live. I might go see her live. I would love to see her live. I think we should. Why don't we all fly to Indianapolis? That's not the one I'm talking about. Let's tonight. Not... <laughs> no, not that one. And go see Liz Calloway no, that, that, that's... in Carmel. And that's a great idea, Jason. Tomorrow. But Jason, she's going to be in the city in three weeks. I understand. I can't wait, Sean. I can't wait. Okay, well, I get it. It's been too long. You can you can find out all these things on her website, and we put her website in our show notes. <laughs> and it's pretty easy to remember, LizCalloway.com. It is. Did anyone, any friends of ours say they, they could figure out who it was based on the stuff we posted on social media? Uh, no, not this time, but the one before, we had a few guesses that were correct. Mm-hmm. Listeners, in case you don't haven't found us on social media, you can find us on the Instagram, the good old Facebook, and Twitter. Also, check us out on uh, Friendster. Because we're there, too. <laughs> Does that even exist anymore? There, we're on MySpace and MyFace <laughs> and their space and your space and show space. Um, 
But but if you are listening to the show and you like the show, now is the time where we feel comfortable saying, please go to Apple Podcasts and uh, subscribe and rate us and let people know. Word of mouth is nice, too. I know that's happened. I know some people who are listening now because of personal recommendations, but we're really happy with how it's going. We're proud of the show, and we would love to have more people share. And we're looking, you know, at you, mattress companies. We need ourselves a sponsor. So Casper? Are there any other boxed mattress companies that would like to advertise? Because I don't feel like it's being covered enough. Oh, well, one last little point before we enlist all the mattress companies and move on to Liz Calloway. We had a few technical difficulties during this one. Uh, Jason sounds like he's chewing on tinfoil. But, you know, things happen. It's the internet. We're remote. You know, it's all good. But it's not your earbuds, not your headphones, not your car stereo. It's us. And we fixed it, as you can see. He sounds delightful, Jason. Yep. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Sounds delightful. So (laughs) with that. Yeah, that's enough. Ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Liz Calloway. A lot of people have have been doing podcasts, especially, you know, during the pandemic. But this, (laughs) the subject matter of this is like so amazing. I mean, it's like it was designed specifically for you. Yeah. I got lots of Joe Allen things. <laughs> so I think there's a really, really special Joe Allen story that you have that we might want to ask you to start off with. Oh, sure. You coming to Joe Allen kind of changed your life, wouldn't you? Would you say? Uh, yes. It it changed my life. Yes, it definitely changed my my life uh, because of the existence of Joe Allen. <laughs> 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 I uh, everything would have been different. Uh, I think. Should I just tell you my story? Yeah. Please. Yes. Oh, okay. I get. I guess I could probably even tell you the long story. Go for it. I was doing a show called Baby on Broadway, and everyone in the cast started coming up to me and saying, "Hey, are you seeing anyone right now?" Because there's this really cute guy uh, who works at Joe Allen. He's an actor, and he's really interested in you. And I kept hearing about this guy. And one day I was leaving the theater, and this guy is outside the stage door, and he said, Hi, I'm Dan, and uh, I think you've heard about me. And I talked to him briefly, and I said, Well, I'm glad we officially met. And I walked away. And I went to Joe Allen regularly during these days, um, usually in between shows on Wednesdays and Saturdays, sometimes after the show. And then I realized, oh, I've been seeing this guy, Joe Allen. <laughs> I knew I had recognized him, but I was not interested in, in dating him because I had gone out with someone else who had seen me in the show and it was a very uncomfortable date. And I was like, well, I'm just not going to date anyone who's seen me in the show. So I met Dan and and I kept seeing him at Joe Allen and I'd be like, oh God, this guy. I was in the Broadway show league for softball and we were at Central Park playing 42nd Street and suddenly on the bleachers, I see Dan and and of course the the whole cast knows about this guy. And so he's (laughs) like, there he is, you should talk to him. So I sat next to him and I told him that I was going to be singing the anthem for the very first time for the Mets. I'm a huge Mets fan. And it was going to be Memorial Day and everyone was coming. And I said, so would you like, would you like to come? He's like, sure. And I said, well, how many tickets would you like? And he said, just one. 
And I thought, oh, he thinks this is a date. And it's not a date. So I had 60 people coming to see the anthem. My family, my friends, everyone in baby and the orchestra and, and the crew. And so I had this very specific plan, seating plan, where he would sit nowhere near me, but he would sit with like Catherine Cox and different people he knew from the show. So, and I stopped off at Joe Allen, I gave him his ticket. And that day I sang the anthem and it started to rain. And, <laughs> and, and, and my seating plan went, it went to pieces and he sat next to me and I was just like, Oh my God. And he had an umbrella and I kind of, I was so aloof because I really, I just didn't want to lead him on. Cause I just I always hated when women would do that. And you know, so anyway, long story short, the game ends, 60 of us are going to the subway and he didn't have a token, which you needed back then. And we all just left. <laughs> so horrible to him <laughs> and so he got left behind everyone you know on the subway so who was that guy and the people who didn't know him and I was like oh that poor guy later that night he left a message for me saying I had a really good time at the game and I thought this guy is just this is so sad and he, would, <laughs> he would call me up and he would leave messages and I never was home. And then finally, this is still during the run of the show. I got home and there was, hi, this is Dan. And, you know, I'm just going to leave you the hell alone. <laughs> and I thought, and it made me laugh. And I felt so bad. I picked up the <laughs> phone and I called him. And I said, you know, we talked a little bit. I said, why don't we get together? And I thought I should have a drink with this guy and just say, I am sorry if I've been so aloof and I've been such an asshole. If you want to be friends, great. So we made plans to meet, not at Joe Allen, but at Carumba's downtown. Uh, there was a Mexican restaurant. It was on Broadway and like 8th Street. And uh, it was after two shows. We sat down and we talked and closed three restaurants and moved in together two weeks later. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you were like, and you were like this close to a restraining order. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> and, and so I would. I started to come into Joe Allen after the, my show. And, you know, I started to, you know, be with him as much as I could. The, our first date was, it's actually May, it was May 13th, because I remember this, uh, 1984. Baby ended up closing, oh, maybe a month later. But Dan saw the show 13 times, and his seats got better and better by the end of the show. <laughs> at the end of the show, he had like these amazing seats. But I would come into Joe Allen. Of course, everyone there knew about me. Everyone there knew about his crush on me. Everyone in the show, you know, knew about Dan. And it was just this, so many people were rooting for us. And when we got married, um, I remember he was going to order our wine for our reception uh, through the restaurant, Joseph, um, who worked there. And Joseph said, uh, you know, just order it through the, the restaurant. And then when it came time after our wedding for the bill, Joe paid for it. Oh, that's really nice. Aww. He paid for the wine for the whole wedding. And he was just like, so, you know, he was really amazing and, and generous. And and I donated my Three Musketeers uh, poster. <laughs> well, oh, that was you? You brought that it? That was from you. Yeah, that was. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. Oh, that's Thank you. And I think Merrily is up there, but it wasn't, I don't think it was mine. Um, but three, three Musketeers, I actually 
you know, Dan was an actor. He was also on All My Children when we were dating in early years of our marriage. So when he wasn't doing All My Children, he was working at the restaurant. And just there was so many great people who worked there and good friends. You know, it's it's still a place we love to go. And... That's a beautiful. I mean, that's such a that's such a perfect story. And if we had known about it in January, this would have been our Valentine's Day. Show. Oh, yes, because it's like the perfect yes. cocktails at table seven. Oh, yeah, um, it's a confluence of everything in a in a really lovely way. And the fact that you're still together is is really. It's fantastic. 35 years we've been married. And just, you know, it was funny when I knew Dan was going to propose and I had been, I think I was doing an industrial in Germany or Italy or something. And I came home and I knew Dan was going to propose. Uh, we lived in Chelsea and we had chess. The, the album chess had just come out. And so he was playing chess and I thought, oh my God. He's not going to propose while like chess is playing. <laughs> it's just be so horrible. And an excellent album. And um, he said, "No, we have a um, a cab waiting downstairs." And so we went for the evening. We got it. It was a limo, and he had champagne in the limo. And we're going up Central Park West, and the limo stops, and we walk into Central Park to the bleachers where really we had our first, that first, you know, um, where where I was playing 42nd Street. And then he got down on his knee and proposed with the ring. And I'm sobbing because it's like so romantic. And I thought, and we're going to be killed. (laughs) 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 Yeah, this was in like, yeah, 1984. 1984, you did not want to be in the middle of Central Park (laughs) after dark. Oh my gosh! Yeah, but it's like he played that perfectly. My wow. goodness! Yeah, it's like I, I'm taking. I'm telling you, I gotta got take notes from Dan. Everyone listening, take some notes on how to be romantic. And the final <laughs> thing is, after we got married, Dan got audited, and the woman he was talking to, the auditor, was going through. And it's like I see, I see you have 13 theater tickets to one show, <laughs> and Dan was like, "Well, you know, as an actor." You need to study. You need to go and, and see shows. And she said, 13 times. And he said, okay, I, I'll tell you. Um, I saw this show. He had a, actually a ri- originally auditioned for Baby. So he saw the first preview to see, like, who got that part. But he told him, he said, you know, and I fell in love with this woman on stage. And, and anyway, we're married now. And she said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And he let, she let him off. So, but it was like, it was, it was such a one, it was a very kind of romantic time in New York too. And Joe Allen was such a, it was such, it still is, but it was such the place to be. And you'd see, you know, it was a really good season and Sunday in the Park with George that year. And just so many, you know, people after shows, that's where we'd all go. Yeah. I mean, we've talked to people who've had, you know, relationships going back to the 60s and they all kind of have that feeling about the, how much they liked being there and how kind of fervent things were, you know, in a, in a positive way. Like there was a lot going on and yeah, the city was kind of edgy, but really kind of like young new talent was, was coming up in the theater and it was looser in a way, you know, it wasn't quite as like, I don't know if it's impossible to get in a Broadway show. It seems like, you know, if you look in the rearview mirror, it was 
you could possibly be in a show back then. You could possibly break in. And now I don't know if it seems as possible to do that. But that might just be in retrospect. Like maybe it was easier. Was it? Did it seem easier? Well, I mean, I moved to New York when I was 18. Yes. And I was... I had a certain amount of confidence in myself, but I also knew I was really raw and I had a lot of work to do, but I, I knew I had something and I had potential and it was, a, it, it was, it was different then. It certainly was different. I don't know. Maybe it, there seems to be so much no, noise and chatter. I think some of that's because of social media. It's just a different time and I'm happy to live in, in a, in a time where we can all be so connected and all that. But also, I'm grateful that I had the times. It did seem simpler back then. And, you know, you would go, oh, what's the next show coming out? It's like, oh, you got the chess album because that was going to be a new show. And, you know, and and what's happening in London and getting backstage. And I look back at it very fondly. And I think it would be really difficult to be moving to New York now oh, and yeah. trying to, well, especially now. Yeah. I think some of it is, is probably a numbers game in terms of there's a lot more people heading to New York and trying to do it. And I also think that there, there was a, an industry of middlemen that developed in terms of casting directors and managers and not just agents and things like that. So it just, uh, I, I think the point from actor to actor on stage, there's a lot more extra steps in there now. You have to break through a lot more doors. Layers. Kind of. Maybe. Yeah, layers. And well, and also just with huge numbers of people, I went to college for a quarter, University of Cincinnati, CCM, fantastic musical theater department. And I left because I got a job that ended up falling through. But there were five schools that had musical theater programs then it's a whole industry yeah, now, now there's like 500 oh it's now it's like a thousand thousand i think yeah and that's you could make an argument that that's not a good thing it's it's making money for colleges but it's 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 a difficult business to break into anyway uh it's giving a lot of people opportunities to learn which is fantastic but it is very different and i don't like to think oh i'm ancient but I do, ha I have seen how things have changed and it's fascinating. I'm grateful to still be relevant uh, after all these years. We have to um, go back to your first Broadway show because it's such an iconic show. And the fact that you made your Broadway debut in Merrily We Roll Along, which is a show about youth, which is a show about young talent, which is like, you know, you worked with a cast that was loaded with really young, talented people. Were you, I mean, this I, I don't mean to sound like, were you aware of who Harold Prince and Stephen Sondheim were at the time you got that job? I mean, did you kind of understand who you were going to be working with? Oh boy, did I. <laughs> the first Broadway show I ever saw was Company. Oh, wow. And even though I'm from Chicago, I lived in New York for five years. My dad was a journalist and he was transferred to um, CBS radio. So my parents saw the show first and brought home the cast album. And I was actually literally listening to the cast album of Company yesterday because I'm going to do a podcast tomorrow all about original cast albums. And I said, let me talk about Company. And um, they brought home the cast album. And I was just enthralled 
enthralled. And I was a, growing up, I was, I loved to sing in private, but I was incredibly shy, but I, I loved company. And then we saw it. I mean, maybe it was nine or 10 when I saw it. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, it's different. Why are they talking in the opening number? Why are they talking during another hundred people? That's not how it's supposed <laughs> to go. Cause I knew, I mean, I memorized the company album. So when I got cast in Merrily, first of all, I, w- I just loved Sondheim. It was Sondheim. It was Hal Prince. It was George Firth. And it was the Alvin Theater, which is the same as company. And it was just crazy. Um, I was interviewed, but I wasn't actually in the documentary that Lonnie Price made. But so many people are saying, oh, yes, company was my first show. Or, I, you know, so many of us. I don't think we ever talked about it at the time. We've talked about it now, years later, how important company was to all of us. And, and oh my God. And when I called home, when I told my parents who were divorced at the time, but I told them individually that I had gotten into Merrily We Roll Along, they were just thrilled. Yeah. And you were, you were only 20 when you did yeah, that. Yeah, I was 19. I was cast when I was 19 and then we were postponed. And during the, that, postponement. I originally went to the open call for Merrily and I stapled my birth certificate to my resume because they were looking for young people <laughs> and I got and I got typed out so I didn't get to sing. And I was like, oh, that's a bummer. And then I was doing a club act, as we called it, at the duplex. And did you guys know the composer Brian Lasser? Mm-hmm. One wonderful composer. He saw my show and told an agent that he knew, I just heard this young girl, you should submit her for Merrily. And so as a favor to him, they did, you know, and five auditions later, I got, I got cast and I was cast as the swing actually originally. But when they, when we found out and it's so seeing it in the documentary was amazing because I was like, that's what I remember. Hal basically said after a very long day, and we had no idea it was the final day of auditions. He said, there's good news and bad news. The good news is you're all in the show. Yay, 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 screaming. The bad news is we're postponed for like nine months. Do you know what that was because of? He was going to direct an opera. But that actually ended up being an amazing thing for me because I was going to be in the new Sondheim show. I was able to get seen for everything as someone who I'd been on my own and just you know, I did two off-Broadway shows. I did a TV movie called Senior Trip. It's with, on our list. Yeah, with Jason Alexander and Jim Weisenbach. Scott Bayo and, Scott and Mickey Bayo. Rooney. Yeah, Mickey Rooney. And that was all during. So that's how I got to know Jason and, and Jim before we started rehearsals. Oh. But I think had the show opened right away, I might not have gotten to all those auditions because people's perception of the show right afterwards was not particularly good, as we all know. And so for me, that worked out amazingly. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that window is, is really, yeah, right. Of course, in that moment, you were one of those kids. You're one of those kids that's in the new Sondheim show. Everyone's got to see you. Yeah. So that was, that was a really big deal for me. And I did an in-performance at the White House during that time. I sang Another 100 People for that. And it was a really fun, like, eight-month period. 
all the while we were doing merrily waiting parties and once a month we'd all get together so we all knew each other before we started rehearsals and we're all super close still which is incredible so that's one of those stories though about the composer seeing you and calling the agent that like people tell you those things happen and they say do your club act do your thing do this you never know who's gonna come and you never know who's gonna be there you never know who they're gonna know Uh, i mean my whole career was so much like that during merrily when i was the swing i was covering like 12 Girls, it was so hard. It was really, it was so hard. And Ron Field was the choreographer at the time. And he, rich and happy, he was choreographing everyone to do something different. And it'd be like, okay, I can do this. And then I'd go home and I couldn't remember anything. It was really hard. And during this time, um, this agent, who, by the way, is still my agent. <laughs> still That's the amazing. Agency, God bless them. Longevity. <laughs> yes. Um, but they, I got an audition for, um, a show at the public and it was a leading part. And I went on my lunch break because I thought for, for the experience of auditioning for this and I got the part and it was the director was Richard Maltby and it was Ed Cleveland's show gallery. And so when I got cast, I had to decide whether to leave merrily or do gallery because it was happening at the same time. And my agent called Hal's office and Hal said, if she stays with Marilee, I'll put her in the chorus and she can understudy the lead. She can understudy Mary. And Richard Maltby said, if she does gallery, I'll direct her club act for free. Oh, wow. <laughs> he, he denies that. He denies saying that. It's like, no, you did say that. You're in a bidding war between Hal, Harold Prince and uh, Richard. I know. I mean, holy cow. Hal Prince, wow. But when I auditioned for gallery, Richard Malby came up to me right after I sang and said, you are just perfect for a show I'm writing about a, a pregnant college student. So if I had that, just another example, if I hadn't gone to that audition, if I hadn't done, you know, and uh, that was like a big turning point for me also because I, Gallery was supposed to be this amazing show. It was right after a chorus, shortly after a chorus line, and everyone told me I should take the lead part rather than be in the chorus. And Joanna Merlin, who cast Merrily and so many Sondheim shows, she saw how distressed I was and she said, you know, really follow your gut because I felt like everyone was mad at me and it was just, it was a weird thing. And I just went, well, my gut told me to stay with Marilyn. And thank God I did because gallery never opened. That's right. I never had heard of it. You said Richard Maltby and Ed Claybon. And I thought in that time period, that would have been never heard of that. It just never, it never opened. It never opened. And there were some great songs in it. What was, there was an off-Broadway show that Lonnie Price did. And it was about Ed Cleban. Um Class act? Class act. Yeah. And that actually, they talk about gallery in that in that show. And then during rehearsals, during previews, Annie Morrison got sick and she didn't miss any performances, but I would sit in the front row of the Alvin Theater during rehearsals when they'd be trying out new scenes and she'd do the scenes and then I would sing her songs for her just from the front row. And then years later, I thought, well, that's how Sondheim heard me and Uh asked me to do other things because I sang 32 bars of Be a Lion at my audition. I never sang more than 32 bars. 
during all my five auditions for Merrily. I love that song, by the way. What, Be a Lion? <laughs> I love that song. From The Wiz? Yes, Be a Lion from The Wiz. That's a gorgeous song. I use that for everything. And in fact, I am next month releasing a single of it, uh, a live recording. I, you know, I did a, sh- uh, a show where I did like called For the Record and I recorded a bunch of stuff live and I didn't use it. And I thought, you know, it's such a good song. It's such a great song. I was like, I'm going to put it out as a single just because that song got me so many jobs. I sang it for everything, whether it was appropriate or not. I mean, I was like, oh, you have a country western song and I would do it with like a country, a twang or an uptempo. I'd sing it faster. So, but I love it now too. It's like, it's a, it's a whole different song to sing now. It's very, I find it very inspiring. My, my I know you and your sister have done, Anne Hampton Galloway have done two. You do two out al- two albums. I mean, you perform together frequently, and on your website, there's these clips of you playing piano together and singing. Well, she's playing. <laughs> no, okay. I'm sorry, I should be playing. Wow. She's she's playing and singing, and you're singing. Yeah. And um, was that kind of a foregone conclusion that that was where what you two were going to do because of just the family you grew up in and your mom being a performer? And because you said you were a little shy early on about singing. it was it was a foregone conclusion that Anne would do it for sure, but it was not for me at all. I loved to sing as long as no one was home. But I just, I remember telling myself, and this seems so ridiculous now, but when I was eight, I remember thinking, well, if everything fails in my life, I can, you know, I can fall back on a singing career. (laughs) I really thought that as like a little girl, I knew I had a voice. I used to sing, you know, to like hair, that hair cast album was my first album I had. And I loved musicals, but I couldn't bear the idea of singing in front of people. And I, I didn't do any chorus wow. in school. I didn't do anything. Occasionally at home, if we'd have a party and my mom would try to get me to sing, I'd make everyone turn around and not look at me. And... Then I, I did in high school, I was in the core, I did like the chorus of a couple of shows and I kind of was dabbling in that. And my sophomore year, my parents got divorced and it was a really, really difficult time for me. And I was in this show, in the chorus, and the most popular girl in the theater department came up to me and, 
And let me just preface this by saying I was a real loner. I, I was did not have a lot of friends at that point in my life. And she said, I heard about your parents and I'm so sorry. Would you like to come and hang out with me and my friends this weekend? And I was like, uh, okay. And they all did shows. And I suddenly had like friends for the first time. And I thought, wow, if I do theater, then I can have that family feeling and that, um, which is what I love so much about theater is the collaboration and um, the family feeling. And so I decided then that's what I was going to do. So you got over, you got over it essentially. Well, um, now pretty much, but oh, it took a long time. You know, um, I, I threw up after my audition for college. I mean, I was just a, so nervous. But I moved to New York. I, I started to, you know, the more I auditioned, you know, the, it, the easier it got for me. It was much harder when I did, you know, started doing cabaret and had to look at people. Whereas in theater, you can kind of hide behind your character and you see all black out there. But I truly started doing theater for social reasons, more so than I'm going to be a star and I'm going to- That was me. I did the same thing. Yes. And I threw up before my college audition, not after. So- (laughs) Did you? (laughs) I did. Oh my God. Where did you go? Uh, I went to a school called Milliken University, but the audition that I threw up before was for Carnegie Mellon. You know, I drove several hours to go to this hotel and so nervous and just puking, puking, puking. And it's only like an accompanist and one person there. And I, I was just- Terrified, terrified. Yeah, but walking into those like college audition rooms, it just feels like the longest walk. You know, like there's a table and they're they're a mile and a half away from you and they're like writing and putting on a show up there. It's so awful. It's so hard. You know, I do uh, a fair amount of master classes for auditioning and just to help with giving encouragement and ways to feel more confident. And I said, and it's still, it's auditioning sucks. It's really hard. And it never really gets, you know, you can sometimes do a great audition and still you can do a terrible audition. And it, But it's what you have to do. Yes. So anyway, so it was not predetermined at all for me. Although for some reason I did have this feeling that that's what I could do. But I think maybe because my mom was a performer and a teacher and Anne was a performer, and, and I just thought, I'm going to do something different. And so sometimes I think, wow, if my parents hadn't gotten divorced, would I have found that? In the same way, if Brian Lasser didn't see my club act, and if I hadn't auditioned for gallery, would I have auditioned for... Because I ended up never auditioning for Baby. I just ended up doing it. And if I had audition for it? Would I have done a good audition? And would I have been cast? And so there's been a lot of a lot of things like that for me. So did you ever study voice? It doesn't sound like did you study as a child? Or was it just all natural chops? I heard my mom give a lot of voice lessons. So I think I learned through osmosis Mm -hmm. by listening to that. But no, I didn't. I didn't do voice lessons. That's incredible because, you know, I as a singer myself, like over the years talking about your voice and the things you can do with it are things that like have come up as things we've discussed. Like, how do you keep that? How do you get that gorgeous pingy mix that you have? And, you know, like as studying as I grew up. So it's amazing that that was all just 
natural. That's that's awesome. Well, I remember in when I was listening to the company album yesterday, I was very influenced by um, Pam Myers, mm-hmm. and I was listening to another hundred people, and it's like she had this wonderful mix. And I didn't know what it was called at the time. And I think when I was when I started performing and actually doing things, I didn't necessarily know how. I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I just kind of found my way. I mean, musical theater now, particularly for women, it's very different. The demands on the voice, having to belt super duper high, which wasn't really, you didn't really do that back then. It wasn't as demanding. Or if something was high, I just sang it how I sang it. And But I'm also very careful with my voice to not strain and sing things that would hurt hurt my voice. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of concerts with Stephen Schwartz. And I remember singing Defying Gravity before Wicked came out. That belt at the end? That's not belted with me. <laughs> just like I do my own, I do kind of my own version of it. Uh, and it's really fun to sing. But, you know, it's just I couldn't. I suppose with the adrenaline, maybe I could do something, but it would wreck my voice. So when I um, when I auditioned for Miss Saigon originally, I uh, had to sing I Still Believe. And I remember thinking there's like a Chris, what's haunting you? Is this real high mm-hmm. thing? And I thought I could maybe do that. It's like with the adrenaline going, I could belt it. But that is not what I couldn't do that eight shows a week. And I couldn't mm-hmm. do it with a cold. So I thought, I'm just going to sing this how I would sing it. They're not going to hire me anyway, because I was uh, four and a half months pregnant when I auditioned. <laughs> gave birth a month before the first preview. But so I just sang it how I would do it. And then they surprised me and, and cast me. But that's, I've, I've always been very careful about that. Do you have like a, a ritual now? Because the quality of that upper register is still amazing. Um. You know, I sing a lot in my car. I sure have We've seen those. Mm-hmm. We've seen those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know. I've been singing a lot in my car. You know, I haven't been singing as much during the pandemic. I have live concerts coming up in July, which is like amazing. But it's like, whoa, I have to like get my voice back. It's been through a lot emotionally. We've all been through so much, you know, these last 15 months. And I think they've taken a bit of a toll. What what was happening with you um, at the time that COVID closed everything down? Were you doing concert performances on a regular basis or where? I was doing a lot of concerts. I was actually... The last live performance I did was something at the York Theater. It was an evening of Sheldon Harnick songs. And it was Sheldon and Rebecca Luker and Karen Ziemba and myself. And then I was the, I think it was maybe two days later, I was on my way to San Francisco to do a weekend of concerts. And I never get Wi-Fi on planes because I like to unplug whenever I can. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to check. And I found an hour and a half into the flight that my um, gig was canceled, landed, and then it took the red eye home and everything shut down. And so my first live concerts back are in San Francisco, that venue, which is kind of fitting, you know, to get to do what I didn't do before. The year before, I did a one-person play called Every Brilliant Thing, which was an amazing experience. And I'd like to do that again. 
has a lot of audience interaction. So that may take a little time before I could do that show again. When you did Miss Saigon, it was the follow-up to Les Mis. So there must have been huge anticipation for that, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yes. It had been a big hit in London. And there was quite a bit of controversy around it because of Jonathan Price. And now I think, oh, my God, that could never happen now. He could never be cast now in that. And that was a really interesting experience. I mean, partly because to give birth and I had a C-section. I had a two week maternity leave. Oh, my God. A full two weeks? Two weeks. Yes. And they and they accidentally cut my bladder during the surgery. Oh, my God. How are you even walking, let alone singing. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, I was in the hospital eight nights and then I was home a week. And then my first day back was our first day in the theater. I mean, that's, I got to say, I think you were pushing yourself. You think? (laughs) Just a little. I do. I do. I think that's too much. I'm still tired. I still haven't recovered. (laughs) I mean, that must have wiped you. It's like places, get up, come on. And you know, Back to Dan, he, uh, we had been living in Boston. We moved to Boston uh, for three years. I did a, a television show for kids on the CBS affiliate there. It was like Good Morning America for Kids. And I did that for three years. And then I moved back to do Miss Saigon. I mean, it was crazy. Dan, for the first several months, would be in my dressing room. And I would nurse Nicholas. And then I'd be like, oh, there's my cue. Gotta go. <laughs> go on stage. God. And you know, but he just gave up at I mean, he just that's what he was there until, you know, because it was impossible what I did. And I was very lucky that first of all, I had, you know, fifteen minutes of stage time. So it was doable more so than other shows would have been. And that I was allowed to have him in my dressing room, my son in my dressing room, and it was a nutty time. But amazing. But I don't remember certain parts of Miss Saigon probably as a result of being so sleep deprived. When you were, I know you were, you did Cats as well on Broadway Mm -hmm. and you played Grizabella. Was that before this or was that later on? Because I know you had a long run in that. Uh, Cats was after Miss Saigon. I actually auditioned for Grizabella originally. Wow. And I was way too young, but I got called back for it. And when I was, um, before Merrily and after Merrily, I was a singing waitress. That was my job. I used to sing Memory in my restaurant and um, and never thought I would do the show. And then I auditioned and I ended up doing that on and off for five years. I not cons- I mean, they were incredible that they, again, I could have my son backstage. So I would like give him a bath or play trains. And then, you know, that was 14 minutes of stage time. But they were so generous. They gave me, I would take off time to do sibling revelry with my sister. Or I did Anastasia. It's like, oh, I need a week off to go to LA to do songs for that. And so they were, they were really, really good to me. And, and so that's, you know, I, I did a lot of other things while I was doing Cats. Because people are like, how could you do Cats that long? And I say, well, I have a very nice house. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> But also, it didn't feel like, you know what I mean? It didn't feel like it. Um, I, w- I couldn't have done Miss Saigon for five years. I would have lost my mind. I'm just wondering, like, was your son fascinated by all the people backstage and the cat makeup? He must have loved that. Oh, God. He did. He got really into it. And then he had his own character. He became Tam Candle. 
And they gave him a little wig and, you know, my dresser would like, he'd be out and watch some of the show with my dresser. And then on days off, mommy, let's play cats. Oh, (laughs) Let's play green eyes. I got to say the cats people sound like good people. Yeah, they really were. And the cast and the orchestra. I mean, there was some really wonderful, I just, um, my friend David Hibbard, he played Rum Tugger while I was there and we had lunch yesterday and. Yeah, it was a good time. We we talked to Betty Buckley about maybe three or four months ago. She talked about going to cat school and how in the original development of it, they did it on their hands and knees for a couple of weeks. It was something in that vein. And they had a movement person come in. And so she, they had them all kind of get like a pack of cats or whatever. Is that a group? Is that the correct amount? What do you call a group of cats? A herd? A herd of cats. A litter? I don't know. A group. <laughs> a group. But they were trying to... Be, so, so the movement, all of the movement that came out of it, she was saying was, was you know, we worked with choreographer, but it was also directed and worked on with a movement person. So they all had like their own lot gestural lives as cats. It was the first time I had ever replaced anyone in a show. So that was a really different experience to be like opening night, really nervous and realizing everyone else, oh, it's another, you know, it's another show. But for me, it was like, oh, my God. Um, I remember in the opening number, I don't know if Betty talked about this, the actress playing Grisabella was another cat and danced in it, which I actually loved doing because I love and admire dance so much. I would have loved to have been a dancer. And so I worked so hard on, you know, I had a, I was a different character. I called myself Mahuvna. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> but if I had friends come to see the show, if they couldn't pick me out in the opening number, that was good. Joanne Hunter, who you guys know, who's now a wonderful choreographer, she, uh, we did Miss Saigon together. And she m- loves to mock anytime I see her, when you're walking alone, which was my solo line as Mahuvna. <laughs> In the opening number of Cats. <laughs> and when I saw the revival, Grisabella wasn't in the opening number anymore. And I thought, well, that's not fun because I, I love doing that. That was a little bonus for everybody. Yeah. So you're a Mets fan, a huge Mets fan. I most certainly am. Now, I think this is really cool that you sang, I hope this is right, you sang the national anthem at the 1986 National League Championship Series game at Shea Stadium. Is that correct? That is correct. And how did they not make you sing it every other game from <laughs> from then on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like as a good luck charm or something? Uh, well, actually, we lost that, which is my record over the years singing the anthem for the Mets is quite good. Do you know who else sang at that series? It's two very famous Broadway people and big Mets fans, Glenn Close and Len Carew. Oh, wow. That sounds right. They go to Joe Allen, too. Yes. (laughs) We talked to Len Carew. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, How do you even know that, Dana? I'm a Yankee fan, so... You know, I love baseball and I love New York baseball. And I, I I love baseball, too. Yeah, I just posted that first anthem that I did. And that's when Dan was in the audience and was sitting next to me. It was <laughs> Memorial Day 1984. And during the pandemic, I have been, you can see I have a TV behind me. And there is a, um, a VCR underneath it because I've been digitalizing things and trying to put stuff up on my YouTube channel just as something to do. And it's fun. I've been uncovered so many interesting things. And one of them was the first anthem. And I wore my baby jacket because it was my day off. And to hear that, and now I think I was so 
relaxed. And same thing with the 86 playoffs. I look at that now. I'm, I've been still been singing the anthem for the Mets for years. I'm going to do it again next month. But I get so much more nervous now than I was just so fearless and calm back then. Well, maybe if you could ask everybody in the stands to turn around and not look at you when you sing, <laughs> then that might calm you down just a little bit. That's good, Jason. <laughs> that is actually a great idea. That's a great idea. I have not actually thought about doing that in a show, that it would be really fun. And no throwing up. Yeah, no throwing up. Nothing up. Right. Either before or after. <laughs> well, that's actually a great segue that's... into our <laughs> end of our interview, because we do a last call Proust questionnaire, which is similar to what James Lipton used to do on Inside the Actor's Studio, but we've Joe Allen did a little bit. So we're just going to ask you eight questions, not ten, because, you know, who are we to ask ten? Um, and, and they're going to, it's the first, you know, they're short, they're short questions. First thing that comes off the top of your head, we would love to hear your answers. Okay. What is your drink at Joe Allen? Uh, a glass of Chardonnay. What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Uh, a sports announcer. Oh, that'd be cool. Baseball in particular? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, we have great announcers. I wouldn't dare to. Uh, <laughs> I, I could learn from them. What live performance that you've seen floored you the most? Oh, God. Um, oh, okay. The original cast reunion of Company. Oh, boy. At Lincoln Center. It was 1991 or 1992. Dan had surprised me on Easter morning in my Easter basket was an egg. I opened it up and it was two tickets to the concert, which had been sold out. And, and I was like, oh God, that would have been so amazing to go to. Went to that, cried the whole time. It was just, in, that was just incredible. Once again, props to Dan for the romance. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. That's props right. to Dan. And and it's company. I mean, company comes back. Yeah, it's a, it always comes back to Sondheim. It comes back to Sondheim. It comes back to company. Now, did he get you the tickets yet for the new revival of company when it reopens? <laughs> he has not. We did see it in London, though. Oh, you did? Okay. We have seen it in London. Is there a role that's traditionally cast as male identifying that you've always wanted to play? Well, it's interesting. I don't know if I would say a role I have sung and recorded many songs written for men. And I love that. Um, but if I if I had to just pick one, um, going back to Sondheim, uh, let's say uh, George in Sunday in the Park with George. What's your favorite dish at Joe Allen? And by that I mean what item from the menu is your favorite <laughs> thing at Joe Allen? <laughs> Actually, Dan, Dan told me a story once. This has to do with Orso. But when, when the Orso was happening, and I guess they ordered all these plates from Italy, and I don't know if they arrived and they had they were all broken. That sounds right. That sounds right. <laughs> we all worked at Orso. We've all worked at Orso for years. And years. Oh, wow. We've all worked at Joe Allen, but we were all working at Orso when it closed. Oh, no kidding. Oh, right. You know, I went to Orso not that long before everything shut down, actually. I love that. And we have... Upstairs, that's the we have all non-matched plates like that. The atri, the pottery, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. We were so inspired by it. Oh, I know they went through some. I mean, I heard that story about the whole shipment of busted plates. And <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I am very. I I I like that chicken Caesar salad. Oh yeah, that's and a good one. Dan likes to go and sit at the bar 
and have a burger. And Nicholas, our son, who just turned 30, he will sometimes go and sit at the bar at Joe's and have a burger. Like, you know, careful of the things you order, children. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, though. Passed down through the generations. I love that. It's great. That's right. What's your favorite curse word? Fucking asshole. Nice. You notice that's the first question that I've really answered immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it comes up quite a bit in the world right now. (laughs) Yes. It's just like, oh, it feels so good to say. And if I had to choose one of it, it would be fuck. If you were at a party and someone were to ask you to sing a song, what would be your go-to? Oh, I first of all, I would just go like, oh, God, don't make me, don't make me. <laughs> <laughs> now that we know you would make us turn around. It would depend how much I had to drink. Um, After a half a bottle of Chardonnay. Yeah, or half a bottle of Tito's. Uh, what would I sing? Well, it would depend on who the pianist was. At a party, I would just, first of all, I would just say I would be, I would be really nervous Metalark. Oh, okay. Yes. I love listening to you sing Metalark. <laughs> I couldn't have had too much to drink before that. No, there's a lot of work to do with this. There's a lot that, of yeah. words for that one. Yeah, I was like, I'm not sure why I said that. I would have had to have been stuck in traffic in my car for three hours, been singing for three hours so that I would be warmed <laughs> up enough at a party <laughs> to sing that. Yeah. Well, I'll come to that party where you sing Meadowlark to me. Okay. <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> a third lower. <laughs> and our last question is, pick one word to describe how you feel about Joe Allen, the establishments. Family. Like literally. One of the reasons it's so special is it's like when you'd have your account and when you have just knowing you have a history with a place and also that you're part of this community, you know, of performers and and everyone who's gone to all those restaurants it's just it's 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 very very special well thank you thank you so much yes it was really a pleasure to talk to you you guys so awesome to talk to you we like to end with a toast so if you'd like to raise your glass my kenyan water bottle Mm -hmm. yes raise that glass to good friends great nights at the theater and cocktails at table seven yeah cheers 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 thanks for joining us Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.